Heavenly Father, we just ask that you would be especially present this morning in light of this prayer. I'm right now praying for our prayer. That even as these words, the Lord's model prayer, fall off of our lips, Lord, that you would fasten them tightly to our hearts. What a what an especially sensitive topic to pray for, forgiveness. Can't imagine the stories and the narratives and the hurt and the pain, the wrongs done that are represented in this room, relationships that have been broken. But you know, Lord, you're no stranger. And we thank you that we, in you, Jesus Christ, have a high priest who can empathize with our weaknesses. And so we're asking, Lord, right now that you would do what none of us are capable of doing on our own. You would enable us to step into the power of the kingdom. We ask that you would bring it to us, even as you promised, that where your foot steps, Lord, there is the kingdom. Step here. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, step here. Into this building into this church, and into each of our individual hearts to spread forth the healing power. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Those uh, Alan and Janine who you just saw are uh, two of our home group leaders shared a very powerful testimony of some of the things that they've been through. And one phrase particular that stood out to me from Alan was forgiveness is for us a very powerful word. Forgiveness is a very powerful word. And I think probably a lot of us can resonate with that. I know I can. And it kind of works both ways in its power. Not only is it powerful and very, you know, difficultly powerful, if I can verbalize that word, Uh, to share forgiveness with someone else that doesn't deserve it, but also to receive it. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever been told, I forgive you, by somebody in an unsolicited manner? You ever felt that that way before? You're like, you forgive me? No, I forgive you. You're the one that wronged me. Why are you telling me? Like, it's this unsolicited. Unless you are asking for forgiveness and someone offers it, it's kind of an insult, right? Forgiveness is a very loaded and powerful word, and it works both ways, and it can even feel condescending when someone offers it to you and you don't think that you need it. Why am I in the need of your forgiveness? In the same way, I think we we just have to understand out the gate why we need it before we can start praying for it in our own lives. We need to know why we need to pray this prayer. Forgive us, Lord, for our debts. We need to feel the significance of forgiveness in our own lives. And the only real way we can do that is to start with the significance of sin, which I think Jesus does when he brings up our debts. This is a <clears throat> probably a hard one for some of you, especially if you're just visiting today, you know, probably came out of a brutal Saturday into Sunday morning hoping for some hope and some light and some joy, and the last thing you want to talk about today is sin. might be thinking to yourself, oh, here goes the church again, talking about sin, sin that, sin that, sin this. And maybe even at the least, you think of sin as not only an outdated word, it's not like we use sin when we're speaking to each other very often. Perhaps you feel it's overused or at least inappropriate. 
not something you would use to describe yourself. And I can understand why you would come into a church. If that isn't, you feel an inappropriate word for your own life, why the church or anyone, Christians, seem to speak about it so often? Why the obsession with sin? I hope I can at least answer some of those questions uh, to your satisfaction today. One of them, at least the the first place to start, is sin primarily doesn't primarily have to do with us and our feelings so much as it has to do with God. Sin, if you really want an understanding of the Bible's obsession with sin, I think the Bible is far more obsessed with life, and that's why it addresses sin. But if you want to know why the Bible speaks to the issue of sin, and because the Bible speaks to it, the church speaks to it, is because sin, at its very, uh, at its very essence, is an offense against God, not primarily an offense against each other. That's why we, if you think of King David, who in Psalm 51, verse uh, four, said to the Lord, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And I find that very fascinating because what David is talking about is adultery and murder, right? You know the story of King David? He saw a gal that wasn't his and he uh, apprehended that woman who was already married and committed adultery with her and in so doing uh, murdered her husband in order to cover up his mistakes and he was caught by the Lord who sees all and knows all. Those were obviously sins against people, against Bathsheba, the woman that he took, and against Uriah, her husband whom he Killed, And yet, there's also a glimmer of truth. Yes, it's sin against other people. It's an offense against other people. But David saw something that we also need to see. And he emphasized it in his words, I sinned against God. Sin is primarily something that is against God. And you may say, well, I get that, but I cannot, with intellectual honesty, compare my sin to David. And who would? Perhaps a couple people, maybe. But I, and you may say this of yourself, I have, I have not murdered anybody, at least this week, and I have not committed adultery this morning. And so, I just, I'm good. Or at least I'm good, you know, by whatever standard of good that we, we use to, uh, to express such things. I, you may even think of this, you may even be disgusted by the words such as sin because you might honestly think of yourself as a pretty good person. My sin is small. Yeah, I don't do things well or maybe I, I occasionally do uh, something bad but generally speaking, I'm a good person. And I think we could honestly look at each other's lives and see awesome things that we've done. Good things, and I think we could be honest in saying, yeah, we're not, we're not these evil, awful, decrepit people. We're, for the most part, you know, fairly decent humans doing good things for one another and trying to just get through life. So what's the big deal about sin? Why is God so offended? I think it's a perspective issue. If sin is primarily against God, we ought to see or at least get a glimpse of who God is. Basic you know, theology 101 would tell us that God is perfectly holy. So we might fudge the line a little bit. We might cheat on our taxes here and there. We might say something careless. 
And God never does any of those things. He's perfect, as we would expect him to be, as we would hope him to be, eternally benevolent, wonderfully good, always perfect, always holy, always right, always just, always loving. He never messes up on any of those things. Here's a, here's a thing with perspective. Uh, about eight or nine years ago when I first moved to Santa Barbara, I actually moved uh, into an apartment right around the block from here. It's actually on this block, I think, on uh, Nopal or very close um, when I was in school, which is very strange that I now live back on this block and go to church on this block. I think God's trying to keep me on a tight leash or something, but... Uh, I remember coming around this bend as I was coming up onto, uh, uh, coming by the, the, the high school here. And I was driving my truck, and there was a truck parked on the curb, and it was one of those long, like 30-foot flatbed trucks with the, those types of uh, mirrors on the side that just hang out like three feet from the truck. You know what I'm talking about? They're like the really long mirrors, and it has a mirror on the mirror on the mirror. There's like three mirrors attached. And it was stretching all the way into the lane, and I remember just clipping that mirror and knocking it off the truck. And I was like, oh, man, okay. So I thought about it. I was still like learning to follow the Lord, and so I, I drove a little bit, and then I'm like, okay. Put it in reverse, went back to the truck, uh, talked to the guy, and you know, I just I think I wrote him a, a check for the damage of the mirror, and we called it even. It was a $150 mirror. But uh, <clears throat> I remember leaving that, and within the same, I think it was within the same month, I heard another story. Uh, Tim Chaddock, the lead pastor over at Reality LA, uh, told me a story that occurred in about the same month where he did the exact same thing that I did in a, a grocery, uh, grocery center parking lot, pulled out of his parking space and knocked a mirror off of the car next to him. Although this car was not a truck like the one I hit. This one was a German car. Its name rhymes with Mercedes. He did the exact same thing that I did, only his bill was a th- uh, about 10 times more expensive than mine. And I remember just thinking about that very deeply. I was like, that's very interesting. We both did the exact same thing. The bo- we both did the exact same offense, and yet the, <clears throat> the offense has less to do with the presumed damage of the action. We both backed up. We didn't see the object, we clipped the side. We both did it. The offense has less to do with the presumed damage of the action and more to do with the actual worth of the offended party. I hit a truck, he hit a shiny car. (laughs) So when I do not act out in self-control or when I am impatient with you, I can very easily justify my action because it doesn't seem like a lot. Because other people have done things that are so much worse than that. But when we stop thinking of uh, uh, trying to justify our particular actions and we get our eyes on the offended party and we see that he is eternally holy and perfect and glorious and full of splendor 
and other than us. That's another word that, uh, that uh, synonymous with holiness. He's other, he's different. He is majestic, he is God. All of a sudden, our little bumping of the, rear view, uh, of the side mirror takes on a different perspective. You may say, okay, but you know, I don't actually bump God's mirrors. I don't do bad things. I'm a fairly de- de- uh, decent person. I don't do a lot of bad stuff. This is where I think Jesus' words are very helpful. Because in his words, when he says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, our debts, there are actually two facets of sin captured in Jesus' words. Uh, In Aramaic, which is what Jesus would have spoken uh, to to the people he was addressing and teaching, Jesus had available to him the word uh, kabah, which means both, two types of sin, both the uh, debts and trespasses. Okay? Greek, like English, expresses these two ideas with two separate words. There's two different words for that. And so when the Lord's Prayer was translated from Jesus by Matthew and Mark and Luke and John into Greek, there was a problem. They had to choose which word to use. So Matthew chose debts, and Luke managed to use both words. But when we choose, uh, whichever word is chosen for worship in English, we've got to remember that in that word that Jesus is using is encapsulated both meanings. And Matthew saw fit to hone in on this particular word debt. Let's talk about trespasses. This, I hope, will clarify things. A trespass is probably what you're thinking when you think of sin. It's something done that should not be done. It's a wrong action. Bad. Don't do that. But you did it. Trespass. It's doing something you should not have done. And Matthew borrows that term later in verse 14 when he he repeats himself. He says, if you forgive others their trespasses, what they've done wrong against you, then your heavenly Father, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But the word that Matthew pulls out of Jesus' word here in the verse is debt. If a trespass is something that should not be done, a debt is something not done that should have been done. Okay, You can think of it as a trespass is a sin of commission. You committed an error. A debt is a sin of omission. You failed to do something right. And that covers a whole lot of stuff. Hence, uh, you remember last week if you were here, the little excerpt from the Episcopalian Book of Common Prayer that we quoted in our prayer together. I loved that, that line. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. That's such a powerful phrase to me. That last word for debt gets to the heart of this text. What we are owed to God is righteousness. It's not merely enough to not do all the bad stuff, but we are to reflect his glory. We are to reflect his righteousness. When people see us, they should see a glimpse of the divine. And everywhere we, where we fail to do that, just think for a moment, just to give you a taste of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. Just land on that last one for crying out loud, self-control. How many times have we failed that just this morning? <laughs> this means 10, 10 times. <laughs> See that? It's not enough 
that we've done wrong, but it also includes what we've failed to do right. As people who have been made in God's image, we were made to glorify him by exuding and practicing righteousness. Now you still may, that, that word sin might still be leaving a sour taste in your mouth. Perhaps you've been wounded and hurt over the years by people just giving you lists of things to do right. Maybe that's all you can think of as far as Christianity goes. It's just a group of people that tell me lists of things that I'm supposed to do. I'd like to take you a little deeper than that. If you can think of it. Yes, there, there are things that we're not to do and things that we are to do, but if you want to take it a, even a step deeper, at the deep end of the pool of sin is not merely a failure to do something right, but a refusal to trust God. Because every time we fail to do something that he tells us to do, we refuse to trust him, and we are, in a sense, living our life for ourselves. Going back to the Garden of Eden, we are saying, like Adam and Eve, I know better than you, and my life is going to reflect that. It's an issue of trust and obedience. One author described it in this way, Barbara Brown Taylor saying it this way is so helpful, I think. Neither the language of medicine nor of law is adequate substitute for the language of sin. Contrary to the medical model, we are not entirely at the mercy of our maladies. The choice is to enter into the process of repentance. Contrary to the legal model, the essence of sin is not primarily the violation of laws. It's not just doing, good thi- uh, doing wrong things or failing to do right things. It is primarily a wrecked relationship with God, one another, and the whole created order. All sins are attempts to fill voids, wrote uh, Simon Wheel, because we cannot stand the God-shaped hole inside of us. We try stuffing it full of all sorts of things, but only God may fill it. Sin, at its core, is us, to borrow the cliche, trying to fill the God-shaped hole on our own. And so you see... We're not merely the victims of our past. Yes, we have a past, and yes, it forms us, but we're not merely the victim of our past or our environments or our social structures or other people's mistakes as real and as devastating as those things can be. We are, and we have to, if we want to move forward from this, come to a place where we can see, recognize, and admit we're sinners, At the core of all of humanity's greatest ills and maladies is a failure to trust God. We daily choose things or neglect things from an attitude of pride, saying we trust ourselves more than we trust God. That, I hope, sheds some light on some of those other Christian phrases you might have heard, saved from sin. God saves us from our sin. What does that mean? Well, hopefully, now that you know what sin is, you know what being saved from sin means. We often throw other terms around to describe that conversion. You might have heard born again. They're kind of all somewhat synonymous to describe God pulling us away from the power of sin. What does that mean? I just want to share with you a, a, a few passages spread throughout the New Testament. Give you a wide diet of salvation from sin from authors like Paul, John, Peter, 
Jesus himself. I'll give you a little taste of what this means. Paul told Timothy uh, that Christ came into the world to save sinners. He told the church in Corinth that, this, <clears throat> that Christ died. How does he come into the world to save sinners? Christ died for our sins. Peter in Acts chapter three, verse 19, told a group of people wanting to be saved from their sins to repent therefore. What does that mean? Well, he says it in the next line. Turn back from your sins. That your sins may be blotted out. And listen to this. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I hope your vision of what it means to be saved is growing more robust If sin is not just a list of things that God doesn't want us to do because he's a Scrooge and he wants to ruin all our fun, but rather sin is a broken relationship, broken trust, then this totally makes sense. To be saved from our sins means to be refreshed by the presence of the Lord. That which is keeping us from the Lord has been removed and we're brought into loving communion with the God we were destined for. Hope your vision of salvation is growing right now. John, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, however, meaning if we're honest, transparent, vulnerable, with God and ourselves, he's faithful and just to forgive us. There's that word. Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, not just to overlook, but to remove our unrighteousness. Gosh. Now, far, being, uh, far from just being a you know, get-out-of-jail-free card, your sins are gone, now stop bothering me, says the Lord, this is also tantamount and synonymous with what Jesus told his disciples. If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever uh, would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So the call to forgiveness is not just, it doesn't just end there. The call to forgiveness is also a call to follow the life of Jesus. And it's that following the life of Jesus that continues to shape and form you, says Paul. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So you see these little words like conversion, when someone says, I I got saved, or "I, I just got, you know, I am saved, or I got converted, or I got born again. Conversion, whatever you want to call it, that happens It's not just a a mental ascent, like I find this agreeable and I'll try it out. It's not just, you know, signing the back of a bulletin. It's not just praying a sinner's prayer. This is when the Holy Spirit enables you supernaturally to see, to be able to see the weight of your sin, to really come to grips with it, and at the same time to see the splendor of God's holiness, and in that, see and cherish and value his grace and forgiveness. And out of that, you respond in a sheer act of faith and trust in Christ. Remember, sin is, I don't trust you. But as the Spirit enables you, you say, now I do. The truth is, I don't trust myself anymore. 
And in a sheer act of faith and trust in Christ, you turn to him and say, I forsake all that I have to follow you. And when you are born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, the scriptures say that his blood washes away your sins once and for all. You don't have to constantly make penance. You don't have to constantly do good deeds to ensure your forgiveness. It is done. Hence, Jesus, last, one of his last words on the cross, to telestai, it is finished. Do you know what that means for your sin? It is paid in full. You remember that song we just sang like two minutes ago? It is paid in full. It is finished. And in that moment, you are, for the rest of your life, made holy in the sight of God. We have another big term that we use for that. We call it justification or justified. I think I remember in Sunday school, people uh, helping us to remember it used to say, it's just as if you had never sinned before. Justification. The kind of first half of the word, I guess. <laughs> you say, but I still do. I still make mistakes. I'm far from perfect. Yeah, but God, your Father, sees you as though you are clothed in his beloved son because you are. You've been made one with Christ. And when he sees you, he sees his beloved son. And all of that splendor and all of that beauty, you have been justified. That's why Paul would say, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That means we're okay. There's no longer any of that separation. You can come to him without fear. In fact, it gets even better. Because we have been justified, made right by the love of God, we are now adopted into the family of God. Paul said, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You have been set free. Your sins have been washed away. You've been forgiven but far from forgiven being the only thing that you are, you have now been given a new identity and adopted into a new family. And it's that relationship that allows you to pray to a holy God, my dad. And that's where we find ourselves in the Lord's Prayer. That's why we can pray, our Father who is in the heavens, hallowed be your name. In that we see the effect of forgiveness. <clears throat> But that also probably begs the question, well, if we're forgiven once and for all, if we're justified, as you keep saying, why do we need to keep asking for forgiveness? And Jesus does tell us to do it. He says, this is how you should pray. Our Father who are in heaven, skip ahead, forgive us our debts. We're to pray, God, forgive us for how we've sinned against you. Why should we do that if we've already been forgiven? I think this quote by uh, the good J.I. Packer, uh, is, explains it better than I think I can. Puts it this way, listen to this. The answer to this lies in distinguishing between God as judge and God as father. And between being a justified sinner and an adopted son. The Lord's prayer is a family prayer in which God's adopted children address their father, their dad. And though their daily failures will never overthrow their justification, they'll always be sons, they'll always be daughters, things will not be right between them and their father till they have said sorry and asked him to overlook the ways they have let him down. Just think of this in any small relational capacity. 
My wife, you know, if I'm impatient or I, I say something careless that I shouldn't have, she won't stop loving me. She won't stop being my wife. She'll always love me. She'll always have that, that, that sense of love towards me. But there will be this barrier that will be there until we deal with what has been put between us by me. Really just me acknowledging my fault, confessing it before her and asking her for forgiveness. And you know what? She may already have forgiven me, but it is an act of reconciliation. This prayer is not a prayer of justification. It's a prayer of reconciliation with your God. We ask forgiveness not to be made right with God, but to stay close to God, to stay in intimate fellowship with him. It's not God who has removed himself from proximity to you. It is you by your daily sins that does that. And you you can kind of feel that, right? Whenever you do something and you're like, "I, I shouldn't have done that, and the shame that you feel. Do you ever feel distant from God? David said in the Psalms that God is not actually distant from you. He is closer to you than your breath. But we often can feel distant from God. What is that? What is that feeling coming from? It is from our sin. As a prophet Isaiah would say, it's our sin that causes that separation. Our daily sin keeps us from that thriving relationship to God and it can rob us from life in Christ. It might not rob you from your standing in Christ, but it could rob you from your experience of him. And so we ask him for forgiveness. Not necessarily for God's sake, but for our joy and for his glory. Ephesians chapter four, verse 30 uh, through 32 is an example of this when Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, right? Examples of grieving the Holy Spirit, speaking to a Christian here. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. There's a great example right there of how unforgiveness won't make God think differently of you, but it can cause you to feel that sense of separation from the life that he gives. And so to pray, such a simple line as, God, forgive us of our debts, is an appeal to his grace. To pray, forgive us our debts, is to claim your inheritance as a son and a daughter. To pray, forgive us our sins and our debts, is to pray, God, I need you to pull me a little closer by my act of distrust, by my act of sin, by my act of, uh, by doing what I should not have done, by not doing what I should have done, I have, I have, I have, put an obstacle between you and I, and I ask that you would decimate that obstacle by your love. Pull me closer, Lord. Can't help but think of David's prayer in the same chapter, Psalm 51, 11. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. It's a request for his presence. It's a request for a relationship. It's a request for healing. It's a request for reconciliation. It's a request for intimacy. And it is already purchased for you, Christian, by virtue of Christ's finished work of the cross. This prayer is simply you grabbing a hold of it. To pray this prayer is to enter into the joy of that purchase. I think we can easily lose sight of the richness of a word like forgiveness 
because of our culture. And I don't necessarily mean American culture, but Christian culture, which I would differentiate from historic Christianity. I mean the culture of Christianity that doesn't look like the Bible, but that just kind of is what most people think of when they think of Christianity, and they don't know what the Bible says about it. In our, you know, in our nation, that very therapeutic form of Christianity, which is more akin to, you know, therapy than it is following Jesus, has really diminished the luster of things like forgiveness. There's a one sociologist explained in our, in our culture, Christianity can take on a very therapeutic flavor. Therapy, you know, we sometimes want somebody to tell us something to make us feel better about our guilt. We don't necessarily want to remove the guilt. We don't want to change our life. We just want to feel better. Therapeutic. Christianity for a lot of people is therapeutic. I want to feel better about myself. And Jesus makes me feel better about myself. Forgiveness makes us feel better about ourselves rather than making us right with God. Cultural Christianity ends up taking Jesus and makes him almost like a genie in the bottle, someone who isn't there to bother me when I don't need him, but who will spring at my earliest convenience when I'm feeling guilty. He's someone that will benefit us when we need him. It's essentially, as Bonhoeffer described, Christianity without a cross. When I feel bad, I can turn to Jesus and he'll make me feel good. And when I feel good, I can put Jesus back in the corner where he came from. And I can go on living my life however I want and Jesus will always be there to make me feel good about myself again. Contrast that with historic Christianity. Or when a disciple came to Christ, they were essentially saying, my driving purpose, that which supersedes all else that I want, is to be like this Jesus that I see. That is discipleship. That is Christianity. It's not simply I want to use Christ to be a benefit and help me feel good when I need him. It is Jesus is better than anything I have ever known. He is better than me. He's better than you. He's better than anything. He's better than my life. He is life and life abundantly. I want to be like him. I want to be with him. And out of that flows the line that we just read. He is so worthwhile and he is so valuable that I am willing to forsake all to chase after him and to be just like him. Historic Christianity Forgiveness, in that sense, is simply a means to a greater end. It's not the end. Forgiveness enables and spurs us on and enables us and empowers us and fuels us to want to be more like Jesus. Paul said in Romans chapter 6, do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, yes, God meets you where you are, but he doesn't leave you where you're at. He gives you newness of life. He strips you of the death, and he gives you abundant life, and he walks with you 
in the process. God didn't die to stamp our destructive lifestyles. He came to give us newness of life. And even though we didn't earn it, even though we could not climb out of the mess that we created for ourselves, the gospel, I remind you, as we've seen through the Sermon on the Mount, is the announcement that God's kingdom is made available to redeem creation, to transform lifeless people into the image of Jesus Christ. All who by faith in his death and resurrection follow him and want to be just like him. Now, the problem with something like that is that this stuff is fairly easy to talk about and even think that we're doing on a personal level. How's your walk with Jesus? It's good. Are you loving him and following him? Yeah. We can, we can turn that into a very subjective thing, you know? The truth of the matter, and this is the, the last half of Jesus' words to us, is that Christ's likeness often gets vividly fleshed out <laughs> in our relationships to each other. You wanna know how you're doing with Jesus? Well, how are you doing with, with the person next to you? Your roommate, your boss, your employee, your family, your in-laws, a stranger, your neighbor, a person that you hate. The effect of forgiveness in our own hearts leads us to the act of forgiveness with each other. And Jesus says to us words that are initially very difficult to swallow, yeah? Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is a prayer of reconciliation with others. Reconciliation to God flows into our heart and is supposed to spill out into our relationships with one another. Now you may ask, well, does this mean God will only forgive us if we've forgiven other people? Is this like a condition? And how many people am I supposed to forgive before God will forgive me? You know, we start asking those questions. Like, Is this conditional? Do I merit God's forgiveness by forgiving others? And we'd have to say to that, no, absolutely not. For some of us, we are recalling the words uh, that Paul said in Ephesians chapter two, verse eight. It is by grace that we have been saved through faith, not by works that anyone should boast. It is a gift of God, he says. We don't merit his grace by doing good things. However, what Jesus does seem to be saying here is that our forgiveness of others is vivid evidence that we have experienced God's forgiveness in our own lives. In other words, if you can reverse it and start from the end and go backwards, you would say, hey, I know I have been forgiven by God of my own misdeeds because I can, at least in small part, even at least starting in small ways, ex- uh, uh, express that to others when I, cur- uh, when I, in the past, had no ability to do so. God is not just changing me with uh, my relationship with him, but he's changing my, my whole worldview. He's changing my relationships. Those who know how God has forgiven them will experience this increased ability to uh, uh, forgive other people. Now, I want to I be sure to say this. Jesus is not saying, he's not talking about people who struggle with forgiveness. 
Has anyone in here struggled with forgiveness? He's not saying if you struggle with forgiveness and you're not perfect like I am, you're, 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 you're. <laughs> Neither is he saying. <laughs> Neither is he saying those who find it impossible to forgive. I believe he's speaking to people who simply have no desire whatsoever. Essentially who have failed to trust God with forgiveness. If you're struggling with forgiving that one person because of the grandness of how badly they've hurt you, Jesus is not scorning you. He understands. But are your desires changing even if you find it impossible to carry out? You're in a good spot. You're in a, a spot of grace. It's rather those who have no desire to forgive, who'd rather hate other people. Charles Spurgeon once said that for them, the Lord's Prayer becomes almost a, a death warrant falling from their own lips, reminding you that you have never received the forgiveness of God to begin with. The Apostle John would say, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In other words, you've never been impacted by the sheer love of God in heaven. This brings up the the question that I think we're probably all asking. This is the last one. What is forgiveness? I want to start by... talking about what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness does not mean allowing people to hurt you as they have been. I'm immediately thinking of stories that I've heard such as abuse, domestic violence, things of that nature. And I've seen and heard people being told by well-intentioned other people that you need to forgive that person. That means you need to stay with them. You know, I, I'm thinking that the immediate example is domestic abuse. The spouse who is being beaten or hurt uh, in some way, being told <clears throat> by a well-meaning person, you know, you need to forgive them, and forgiveness means staying there and, you know, <laughs> letting them hurt you. And that is absolutely not what Jesus is speaking about. It doesn't mean allowing people to hurt you or to keep hurting you. And I, th- I love the way that Matthew nuances this by telling us, uh, in the words of Jesus, to forgive, not the debt, necessarily, but the debtor. This is addressed towards the person. <clears throat> there was a story told in May of 1981 of the late Pope John Paul II, <clears throat> when he was shot. This is when I was born, so I don't remember it, so it's all hearsay. nor am I condoning Catholicism by telling the story, but it is a really good story, which Pope John Paul II was shot, attempted suicide by Mohammed Adka, uh, attempting to take his life. John Paul uh, survived, and some two years later, a reporter, Lance Morrow, reported on it, saying this. <clears throat> in a bare, white-walled cell in Rome's Rabita prison, John Paul tenderly held the hand that held the gun that was meant to kill him. 21 minutes. The Pope sat with his would-be assassin and the two talked softly. Once or twice, Akka laughed 
The Pope forgave him for the shooting. And at the end of the meeting, Akka either kissed the Pope's ring or pressed the Pope's hand to his forehead in a Muslim gesture of respect. And the Pope went his way. And the two were in some strange way, mysterious way, reconciled. The author of this particular book went on to say, but notice Akka remained in prison. There are still consequences for our actions. And there are sometimes still things we need to do in order to protect ourselves, and that's okay. To a person who's being beaten by their spouse, I would say, get out of there, you know? There's things that we ought to do. Get out of that. That person needs to answer for that. You need to be pulled out of that place of danger. And the list of these types of examples are probably endless. There are consequences to our actions. Forgiveness does not mean letting that person hurt you continually. Here's what forgiveness does mean. The way that the biblical authors tend to use it. It means simply refusing the right that you have to take revenge. Does not mean letting that person continue to hurt you. It means releasing the right to take revenge. Now, not just physically, but also in your heart or in your mind. Have you, ever, you ever felt this way before? I've done this in the past where someone has hurt me and I, I feel like I'm taking the high road. I'm not gonna get them back. But day in and day out, I go to sleep replaying what they've done to me in my head, thinking what I would have done, what I should have said, what I would have done differently, replaying what they have had and uh, what they have done to me and almost in a sense marinating in my own bitterness. You know what I'm doing? I'm taking revenge on them in my own mind. There must come a, a place in our forgiveness where we have been freed in mind and in heart, if not just in body. And that's hard. You may say, not only is that hard, but I don't even want to do that. Why on earth would I relinquish that right? It's all I've got. It helps me get through the day to know that that person isn't getting away with what they've done, that I can at least, uh, I can at least beat them senseless in my mind and heart. They need to know that I hate them. Miroslav Volf, a native to uh, Croatia, grew up, uh, who's a theologian today, he grew up during the Serbian War and saw a lot of things that most of us will never see done to his fellow man. Understanding the depths of human depravity and horror and tragedy done to his own people. Would go on to become a theologian writing about what forgiveness looked like. And I could not put it more simply than he did when he described the incentive that he had to forgive people who were killing and brutalizing his own people. And he put it this way. You see, the trouble with revenge is that it enslaves us. Unforgiveness enslaves us. I remember the words of Alan and Janine in that testimony at the beginning. Forgiveness is a powerful word for us because it releases us from the bondage of sin. And as they would go on to say, in so doing, by allowing God to take that burden of bitterness and resentment and anger and hostility he actually didn't just take it. He, as To put it in their words, God replaced it with love and joy and peace. 
Forgiveness is freedom from having to shoulder the weight of someone else's wrongdoing against you. And there actually is another reason, an even bigger one. If God was able to forgive us far more than anything anyone else has done to us, we surely will be able to find the power and the incentive and the enablement and the desire to replicate that to people who have done things far less. And with God's power, we can find ourselves enabled to release these ailments, not just into empty space, not just ignoring what people have done, not just pretending like it didn't happen, but releasing it into the hands of a God who can bear its weight and our weight as well. I remember the words of the Apostle Peter, cast your cares on the Lord for he cares for you. That's hard. Any of you have ever tried it to a big scale, you know it's, forgiveness isn't a light switch you just turn on. Oh, okay, the preacher told me to forgive. Okay, bam, forgiveness. Who's next? Some of you, there's some deep-seated stuff. Perhaps you're seeing, yes, this is all right, but I can't even see how I'm even able to do that. I'm helpless to forgive. My mind is a prison, and I can't help but mull over these things. It's like it's got its tentacles wrapped around my throat, and I can't let it go. What will I do? Who will release me from this bondage to the flesh? Paul said, thanks be to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. And if you find yourself in a place that you cannot pull yourself out of, you have found yourself in a place of grace. I say to you, it's okay that you can't do it yourself. Turn your eyes to the heavens where your help will come from. And God, who has forgiven you of everything that you have done, will enable you to be freed from what people have done to you. It may not be overnight. It won't come without a fight. You'll stumble back into places of unforgiveness. You'll battle with bitterness and resentment. It's okay. God will carry you through it. And it may for you be uh, daily, constantly coming to God in prayer, saying, God, forgive me of what I have done to you, confessing your own sins, and help me to forgive others as they have forgiven me. I hope you'll take this little card that you've been given on your way in here. It's just the Lord's Prayer, as we've been challenging each other to pray this every day. And I, I challenge you, to memorize and to pray the words of Jesus Christ to us every day and see if it doesn't change your heart. But there's another thing I think we could do this morning is I ask the worship team to come up. Every week as we've been going through the Lord's Prayer, we've been doing various forms of prayer. You know, the first prayer we prayed uh, corporately and we stood and offered praise and thanksgiving to God. The week after that, we we broke off into groups and we prayed for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. After that, we prayed more liturgically. We offered written prayers, psalms, Old Testament, New Testament passages and others together. This time, I don't want to say anything. I want us to take 60 seconds of silence to remember the words of King David when he prayed in Psalm 139, Holy Spirit, examine my heart and see if there's any wayward way in me. We're just gonna be quiet for a minute. 
And as we do, no prayers uttered, no words uttered. Just, just allow the presence of God to surround you today because he's here. And ask yourself a couple questions. Ask yourself, what has God released me from? Maybe the trouble is that you are wrapped up in shame and guilt over things that you've done. Maybe you're crippled by it. Maybe you can never even fathom obeying the Lord or even walking with Jesus because you think that you yourself are a failure. What has God released you from? I want you to bring that to the foot of the cross in the quietness of your heart and be confronted by the sheer power of God's grace. You in Christ Jesus have been forgiven. And if God has released it from his sight, perhaps you should release it this morning too. Rest in his love and his forgiveness. That should bring us to the next question. What do you need to release somebody else from today? Are you holding someone hostage in the prison of your own mind, your emotions? Not everything can be forgotten. We can't just forget what people have done to us, but it is possible to be freed. And even though it might take years, the power of God is able to do such things. What does God want to release you from today? All of this starts with real authentic examination of our own hearts and confession. I just want you to, I just want to invite you to join me today for 60 seconds of silence to just stop running. Let's do that together. Brothers and sisters, whatever that thing is, however powerless you feel in the face of that adversity, I want you to stop trying. Trying to spin your wheels in order to please God. By faith in Christ, God is pleased with you. There's nothing you can add to that or take away from it. What I want you to do today, with whatever you did in that 60 seconds, whatever it was that was in your heart, I want you to lay it at the foot of the cross. And I want you to envision and imagine Jesus Christ himself bearing the weight of that burden and lifting it off of your shoulders. To whom shall we turn, Lord, Peter said. 
you alone have the words of eternal life. I pray that this morning you would find eternal life at the foot of the cross where help, grace, mercy, and forgiveness will be available to you.